This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So each year in the season of Epiphany, the church remembers the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. You've probably noticed how we always start with the Magi visiting the baby Jesus. And the next week, we turn to Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. But I wonder if you noticed that early in the season of Epiphany, every year, the church always turns our attention, just as all the gospel writers do, to another inaugural and essential element of Jesus' incarnation and earthly ministry. And that's the calling of his first disciples. So the second half of our passage from Matthew this morning is the calling of Simon and Andrew and James and John. And the first half of our passage gives us the surrounding context for this moment. So each gospel writer emphasizes a different aspect of this story. Matthew points out, as we see here starting in verse 12, that Jesus is in the town of Capernaum in Galilee. So one reason for that, of course, is that Matthew, alongside these four fishermen, was also from the town of Capernaum. And as you might know, Matthew is known throughout his gospel for pointing out to his fellow Jewish people how Jesus, Yeshua, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the Messiah, who would come to save and rescue his people. So Matthew must have taken special hometown pride in pointing out this verse that he quotes from the ninth chapter of Isaiah that we heard. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The other significant point of emphasis that Matthew makes right at this moment, where Jesus calls his first disciples, is that it's part of the inauguration of Jesus' earthly and public ministry. So after being baptized by John in the Jordan River, Jesus headed to his 40-day fast in the wilderness, which the church will invite us to enter into in the season of Lent. And then the very next thing that Matthew tells us in verse 12 is that Jesus learns that John the Baptist has been arrested. And with this knowledge, Jesus returns to Galilee, where he grew up. But instead of staying in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus heads to Capernaum by the sea. And this is all Matthew's setup for the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, which is what is happening there in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is pretty much the exact same phrase that John the Baptist was using just a chapter earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus now takes up this same call, but not simply as following in the footsteps of John's ministry, but as the fulfillment of John the Baptist's ministry. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, is here, now, in Capernaum, in the person of Jesus. And as Jesus ushers in the kingdom with the start of his public ministry, the very first act of his that Matthew tells us about is the calling of his disciples. So I titled this sermon, The Gospel is Discipleship. In other words, at the heart of the gospel story of Jesus' incarnation and earthly ministry, we find discipleship. It's woven into every moment that follows in Jesus' ministry. His teaching, 
his ministry to the vulnerable and the sick, his miracles, it's all done within the context of discipleship. His disciples are there, and they're watching, and they're learning right from the beginning. So when we think about the incarnation of Jesus, we think about the miraculous reality that Jesus came down and he humbled himself and took on our human flesh. And we point to the main purpose of Jesus' incarnation as his sacrificial death and his resurrection. And of course, that's the heart of the gospel. But Matthew wants us also to see that Jesus came down to raise us up, to call us to be his disciples, to follow him, to learn from him, and to become more and more like him. In fact, Matthew places discipleship as the bookends of Jesus' earthly ministry. It all starts here on the shores of Capernaum in chapter 4, and it ends in chapter 28 with Jesus' last words to his disciples after his resurrection. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus created in his incarnation, in his earthly ministry, a self-reproducing movement among his followers, in which they were discipled, and then they were sent out to disciple others. And it was essential to his mission. It's how the gospel spread. It's how he built the church. And therefore, discipleship is still an essential part of the mission of the church today. Okay, so I want to pause right there, because I think there's a dynamic that I want to recognize that happens and is in play whenever we talk about discipleship. I think discipleship brings up stuff for us. And one of the things discipleship brings up can be shame. Shame around discipleship can come from the feeling like you're a lousy disciple, like a sense you have that you have not been personally growing in your faith and your walk with Jesus. This can happen really in any season of life. I think it can be especially pronounced for someone, maybe a teenager or a college student or a young adult, who's in that stage of transitioning from what felt like a faith of inheritance to one that's personal and active in their own life. I think there's another form of shame that comes when we talk about discipleship. And it's around the feeling like you're failing at discipling others. This can be really pronounced sometimes for singles who feel disconnected from younger Christians. It can be there for parents who are struggling in how to disciple their children to grow in their own life of faith. It can be there for parents of adult children who are watching perhaps their own children in their adult lives walk away from their faith on some level. So let's just return for a second to that title. The gospel is discipleship. If discipleship is woven into the gospel, that means that discipleship is good news, right? So I want to stop right now. 
And I want to ask the Lord to help us to receive afresh the good news of the gospel that is discipleship. So now, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to teach us by your word, to comfort us. Lord, as, as we read in the psalm this morning, each and every one of us was fearfully and wonderfully made. You knew us. You set out a path for our lives before they even began. Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do by your cross, by your blood, by your spirit of removing any shame we carry around this topic of discipleship. And Lord, you would renew in us a sense of thanksgiving for the incredible discipleship we have received throughout our lives and the incredible privilege we have, Lord, would you give us hope in that call and privilege we have of participating in your work of making disciples. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if discipleship and Jesus' incarnation are woven together, then Jesus' model of discipleship is incarnational, right? Okay, here's what I mean. First, the fact that Jesus the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten of the Father, became incarnate, became an embodied human person, means that he lived with human limitations. Jesus was a single human person, and he was confined to a specific time in history, a specific place, and he was limited to a specific group of people. I mean, isn't it astounding that Jesus picked only 12 apostles and five of them, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, all came from the same little town of Capernaum. And four of these men were two sets of brothers. And they were all fishermen. No pedigree, no particularly strong education, no money, no influence. The other earthly reality of Jesus' incarnation was that he dealt with the limitation of time and of circumstances. So he only had three years with his disciples. But Jesus saw in these men something they would never have seen in themselves. He saw who they could be through his discipleship. And for those three years, they spent almost every moment together. They were with Jesus for everything. They were hearing him teach. They were marveling at his miracles. They were asking him questions when they didn't understand. And they were just also doing normal life stuff, finding their next meal, figuring out where they were going to sleep, probably rolling their eyes as Jesus told his favorite joke again. Discipleship happened in real time face-to-face with Jesus, experiencing the extraordinary and the just plain ordinary aspects of daily life. So Bishop Stewart came and talked to our staff this week, and he was just sharing about the experience of reconnection in our diocese after a really challenging season of separation. And he said something, and I just, I I wrote it down right away because it caught me. He said, incarnational presence is extraordinary. You have to be in the room with somebody. And isn't that so true? 
Relationship and discipleship happens when we're together and we're experiencing both ordinary and extraordinary moments alongside one another. So as the disciples experienced this incarnational discipleship of Jesus, their lives were radically changed. I mean, could Peter ever have imagined that he would have been a founding bishop of the church? Would Andrew ever have thought that he would be considered the patron saint of places like Scotland, Greece, Russia, and Romania? Did John and Matthew ever think that their accounts of the life of Jesus would become a part of Holy Scripture? And I think that's the good news of Jesus' incarnational model of discipleship. Simply put, it works. I mean, the evidence that it still works is kind of right in front of us, isn't it? I mean, we're all here today in Wheaton, Illinois, about 6,000 miles away from Capernaum. I looked it up on Google. About 2,020-something years later, we're here in Wheaton, Illinois, alongside a bunch of other churches proclaiming the gospel, not to mention thousands around the world. If you're sitting here this morning as a follower of Jesus, then you are his disciple. And Jesus has personally reached you through his model of discipleship. So how has he accomplished this? Well, first of all, he's done it with the same gift he gave you that he gave those first disciples, the gift of his Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, you have the presence and the person of Jesus with you and in you at all times. So as you seek him in prayer and by his word, he's discipling you by his Holy Spirit. He's shaping you. He's changing you. He's leading you. And Jesus' Holy Spirit is also at work through the incarnational model of discipleship that he established. Okay, here's what I mean. I think this is kind of cool. My wife, Jana, as many of you know, is a pianist. She's a pretty darn good one, if, if I say so myself. I, I am biased, but I'm also musically objective. Um, <laughs> Jana can trace her lineage of piano teachers in just seven generations back to Beethoven. Okay, this is something I'm told pianists love to do. So here, here it is. Beethoven taught Carl Czerny, who taught Theodore Lechetisky, who taught Jeanette Durno, who taught Lyle Gustin, who taught Alma Brock Smith, who taught Karen Edwards, who taught Jana Williamson. Isn't that so cool? So Jana has been taught through her family tree by Beethoven. Okay, so wouldn't the same apply to us and discipleship? I mean, Jesus discipled John. John discipled Polycarp. Polycarp discipled someone else with a strange name. And so on and so forth it went, and the names start getting more familiar until somebody discipled Albert and Livia Williamson, who discipled Tom Williamson, who discipled Steve Williamson. I come from the discipleship tree of Jesus of Nazareth, and so do you. You have a direct connection to him. Everything that's been poured into you came through Jesus' life-giving, incarnational, reproducing discipleship model. 
It was a mustard seed that he planted in that first generation with his disciples. And by his Holy Spirit, it has grown into a massive family tree that we're all still a part of. And you can trace your branch back all the way to the root of Jesus. That's how effective this model is. I think Jesus actually lays it out right here on the beach in Capernaum as he tells his disciples in verse 19. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. It can also be translated fishers of people or men and women. So here we go. Step one, follow me. It begins with Jesus' simple invitation. Okay, simple, but life-changing, right? These four men, they left their occupations, they left their extended family to answer Jesus' call to follow him. And their lives were never the same again. They had no idea about the path ahead, what it would look like. And I'm not really sure they would have followed him if they had known the path. Would Peter and Andrew have followed Jesus if they knew that they were going to literally pick up their cross and follow him to their own crucifixions? Would James have followed him if he had known he'd be killed in just a few years? Or John, if he knew he would end his life on a deserted island? Jesus simply said, follow me. And they followed. And they kept following him for the rest of their lives. Why? Because Jesus proved himself over and over again faithful and worthy to be followed. Peter's own testimony in his second letter, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Of course, Peter's referring specifically there to the transfiguration of Jesus, but he was a witness to countless moments in which Jesus proved himself worthy to be followed. And thank the Lord, Jesus also proved himself to be full of grace when Peter failed quite miserably. On Monday, Thursday, Peter told Jesus he would follow him to death, only to deny Jesus just a few hours later. But after his resurrection, on another beach, Jesus offered his forgiveness to Peter and invited him once again to recommit his life to following Jesus. I mean, we would be here for a very, very long time if I stopped right now and called for people to come forward with testimonies about times in your own life where you didn't know what to do, and you turned to Jesus, and in that moment, you just decided to follow him through a difficult season, for difficult circumstances, and Jesus proved himself faithful and worthy to be followed. Maybe you find yourself in a season right now, a season of waiting, a season of grief or pain, a season where you feel like you've failed Jesus in some way. But the testimony of Jesus' disciples in that first generation and throughout the history of the church is that Jesus is always faithful and trustworthy to those who answer the call to follow him. Okay, step two. Follow me and I will make you. Jesus didn't say, follow me 
in three easy steps. Or follow me and live with a burden for the rest of your life about whether you're meeting my expectations. No, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you. Okay, I tread lightly on language stuff, but I think the original Greek word here is kind of cool. It's a single word that expresses, I will make. And that single word is categorized as first person singular. I, Jesus. It's also future active tense. I will. And it's indicative. And indicative means somebody is stating a fact. Jesus is giving his first disciples a guarantee. He's telling them the fact that he and he alone will do the work of change and transformation in their lives if they will follow him. And the change these men experienced in their lives was nothing that they could have foreseen or accomplished on their own. Jesus proved himself not just by his character and his actions. Jesus proved himself trustworthy and worthy to be followed by the transformation he worked in the lives of his followers. And that same transformational work of Jesus is happening in you as you choose to follow him through circumstances in your own life that you would never have imagined, you never would have chosen for yourself. You follow Jesus. He makes you into something, into something new by the working of his Holy Spirit and by his Holy Spirit working through the Christian men and women he's placed in your life to disciple you. Okay, part three. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So in this moment, Jesus is calling Peter and Andrew to something radical, to something sacrificial. But isn't it cool that it's also connected to who and what they already are? They're fishermen. Jesus' call to our work of disciple-making, it's directly connected to who he's made us to be. All of your gifts, all of your talents, all of your life circumstances. In his incarnation, Jesus doesn't shun the normal stuff of life. In his incarnation, Jesus ennobles it. He was a carpenter. He called fishermen, and then he ennobled their profession. One church father says, Jesus simply transformed them from earthly fishermen to heavenly fishermen. You probably remember that in Luke's version of the story, it includes the miracle of the fishes. Jesus simply asks Simon Peter to cast his net on the other side of the boat. And when he does this, it's Jesus who performs the miracle of bringing in the fish. So what does casting your net look like? There are some people who are called away to other places, to other professions, by their call. But for many of us, the call of discipleship, it's right where we are. It's in the daily stuff of our lives. So this week, the Lord has just been giving me a renewed sense of thanksgiving for all the people who've discipled me over the years, all the relatives, all the pastors, all the youth leaders, all the mentors who poured into me over the years. I've also been spending time this week 
trying to remember. I don't think I can even remember all of them. And, and giving thanks to the Lord for the numerous young men who have discipled my three teenage boys through Res Youth here at, at our church. These men who are teaching my boys the scriptures, encouraging them in so many ways to answer Jesus' call to follow him, casting their nets right here in this church. So what does casting your net look like? I sat down with my parents over Christmas, and we did this exercise. We charted out a family tree back five generations. And as we did this, one of the questions I was asking them was, okay, who do you guys remember as sort of the spiritual patriarchs and matriarchs of our family? And one of the stories they told me was about my great aunt Elizabeth. So Aunt Elizabeth never married, and she invested her life in her local church. And she taught Sunday school for decades. She discipled untold numbers of children in those years, and she led several to the Lord. And my parents told me the question my Aunt Elizabeth asked everybody, pretty much every time she saw them was, how's your walk with the Lord? Or you could put it this way, how are you doing at following Jesus? So maybe you're a business professional, or a teacher, or a doctor, or a parent, or a student. What would it look like to bear witness to Jesus' work in your life and to, and to encourage others to follow Jesus? May the Lord strengthen us to answer his call to follow him. May he continue his work of building the church and making disciples. And may he do that work through each of us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.